Hello, welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. Pre-season is underway. Most of the Norwich City players are back at the Lotus Training Centre and the big kickoff of the Premier League is moving closer by the day. Dave Freezer here alongside Connor Southwell and Paddy David as ever. We also come to you on Future Radio 107.8 FM. We're recording ahead of the England game, so we won't talk too much about that big semi-final, but I'm sure you can manage to get a bit of coverage of, of that match because absolutely absolutely everywhere we will stick to Norwich City matters. Uh, Pad, if I come to you first, how, how are you doing? Uh, how much did you enjoy the England game at the weekend? Very strange experience watching England at later stages of a tournament, basically, you know, swatting aside an opponent. Not used to that at all. Mm-hmm. Quite, uh, I'm too long in the tooth. I mean, Euro 96, I was, I was around for that. And uh, and that was a crushing disappointment to get to the semi-finals in Germany. And so, obviously, we're recording this beforehand. So, let's hope, you know, let's hope anybody listening to this in the next day or so is looking forward to an England final. That'll be some achievement that... Um, but yeah, no, it's been really enjoyable. And what again? We, we, we're here uh, Tuesday afternoon. I'm losing track, Dave. Yeah, it's Tuesday afternoon, isn't it? Yeah. Wednesday afternoon. I am losing track. So yeah, uh, yesterday, what a game that was. Tuesday night, Italy, Spain. But for me, by far the game of the tournament. Fantastic game. Uh, the way Spain played, phenomenal. I haven't, I haven't seen that at all from that Spanish team. If they, if they could have a decent, if they had a Harry Kane at the top end of the pitch. They'd be unbeatable for me. That Olmo, I know you mentioned him, Connor, on social media. What a player he looks, the young attacking midfielder. And that Pedri, 18, I want to be seeing that birth certificate because I don't believe that. He's a, he's a phenomenal talent. So, yeah, if England and Denmark are half as good as that, we're in for some game later. But, you know, ultimately, um, I don't really care as long as England get through. But uh, it's not going to be easy. And uh, and if they do, then heaven forbid it's going to be all over. Dare I say it, Dave? You won't be able to uh, to get out and about, mate. Do you want to? Do you want to let the listeners and viewers know about your travails, mate? In the last few days. Uh, well, yeah, pretty straightforward. In isolation, <laughs> you go out and try and have some fun at an England game, and uh, you get punished for it. But uh, everyone's everyone's well. But we all got pinged by the uh, by the NHS app. NHS app. So uh, that's good fun. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one to have experienced that. It's not the end of the world. Um, Connor, we both got our wall charts behind us. Um, most importantly, is yours up to date? Because mine is. Uh, it's yeah, it's, it's more up to date than perhaps I was expecting it to be, which is which is good. <laughs> I've, I've kept largely on top of it. I'm hoping to be able after tonight, obviously, to write England next to Italy in the final box. That would that would be nice and ideal, <laughs> wouldn't it? But um, yeah, as Pad says, I think you you get experience sort of watching England, and, and you perhaps kind of shelter yourself off from the optimism and, and the excitement that that is certainly felt elsewhere, and wait for the inevitable disappointment. I remember watching the. 2018 World Cup semi-final and and uh, the, the crushing feeling after that was um, was pretty unbearable to be honest. But look, that's that's football, isn't it? What what has been nice, and I know we've kind of said that it's dominated everywhere. It's it's nice to see, particularly given what's gone on um, for the country, and you could probably chat this back further. But certainly in the last 18 months, is football's really brought people together again, and and it just shows how powerful a sport it is, doesn't it? I think when when England do well in a major competition. I've even, um, my mum uh, came down this morning and uh, said, oh yeah, I really enjoyed those penalties last night. I don't think she's ever watched a game of football in her life. So it is, <laughs> it is just um, kind of carrying everyone, I think, which is, which is nice to see. Um, uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll admit, I'm not usually a, a massive England lover, but I think there's something very likeable about this, this England team that maybe they haven't had in a while. So yeah, hopefully uh, we're right in England in, in the final box later on. That would be ideal. But um 
you know, edit accordingly um, for those that are listening tomorrow. Yeah. Well, my, my England experience started because they missed the 94 World Cup, which is when I was seven or eight. So year of 96 was my first experience. And then it was just succession of disappointments year after year. But whatever happens tonight, um, those boys have, have sort of already done us proud, haven't they? And even if it were to go wrong, then... Um, it wouldn't be a case of uh, of sort of mass disappointment. Um, well, no, we would be disappointed not to make the final, but there'd be no shame in in their efforts at this tournament. I think we can we can safely say that. But um, on to Norwich City matters, and I suppose that the big one uh, that we've had in in the last few days is the government announcement of the end of the coronavirus restriction, restrictions, which will mean, as things stand, we're still waiting for the exact details, Pad, aren't we, in terms of there's still a few reports around about the Premier League maybe still looking at vaccine passports and, and variations and things like that. But as far as we know at the moment, there will be a full house potentially for that big game against Liverpool, which kicks off the Premier League season. Can't wait for that. Yeah, I mean, where are we now? 7th of July, as we record. So just over a month, five weeks, and um, probably the loudest rendition of On the Ball any of us have ever heard, I think, that yeah. first one. So, yeah, um, I'm not an Norwich fan, but even I would I would, I would, would be very uh, sort of taken with the emotion of that, I'm pretty sure. And um, and you just hope it is on track, and that because ultimately, you know, we don't need to go down a political route, but, but while they're saying all that, the, the case number's going up and up and up. You're seeing reports... Uh, from Johnson himself, uh, you know, it could be 40,000, 50,000 a day by the time, you know, middle of July comes around. So, dread to think, you know, what that could mean um, if it goes in the opposite direction to what they're hoping, really. Uh, so, I think the experience we've lived through in the last 18 months, the sort of pushback of dates and the re-locking down of society in this country, let's, let's not take it as a given at this stage, but, you know, ultimately, that that is the signal. And, um and if if the sporting bodies generally and Premier League football specifically are allowed, then I'm sure they will be very keen to to, to allow full houses. And uh, there's no no doubt in my mind. I mean, there might be one or two maybe who are still a little bit reticent whether they've been vaccinated or not, just to go back into a, an environment with that amount of people. And, and that's entirely understandable. You know, um, that there are going to be there are going to be people who feel it's probably too soon for various reasons. But you would think. I think I think it would still be that Liverpool game, if allowable, still be a full house. And if it is, then uh, you know it could be a very very special occasion. One, I don't think anybody who has the fortune to be present is probably going to forget in their lifetime. It's going to be really interesting to see how confident people are with going back. I mean, it, as we just mentioned briefly, you know, without going into too many details. I am having to isolate at the moment. And there was only 15 of me and my mates got together for a stag weekend. We were all as sensible as possible. We all tested ourselves before. We all tested ourselves afterwards. And then one person gets a positive and away you go. You've all got to isolate. We're now, we're talking, that's 15 people. And we're all following all the rules and everything and, and doing things correctly. And we're talking about in five, six weeks time, having 27,000 people at Carrow Road. Now, obviously, the vaccine is getting stronger and stronger all the time and and we're sort of winning that battle. But I, I think that will be really interesting, Connor, to see how full Carrow Road will be. We don't know about away fans yet. It's still going to be... It feels like there's a big moment coming, but maybe we're all gonna, just going to have to be a little bit cautious and realise that it's not, it's not going to be straight back to normal immediately. 
Yeah, and let's not beat around the bush either. I think Norwich have uh, an ageing fan base. I think maybe that's the, the best way to do it. There are a lot of season ticket holders who, who are 60 plus. I know uh, a few of my grandparents are season ticket holders. And I would imagine if, if you're one of those people, given the world that we've lived in in 18 months, it's, it's almost a change of psychology, isn't it? We, we've all stayed inside to try and um, avoid contracting this. And then suddenly it's a big shift to actually know we can go and essentially live our lives as we did before. And that, that is going to be a major shift for people. And um how people kind of feel within that, I suppose, is 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 up to them. I, I can imagine a lot of people feeling incredibly anxious about the prospect of going back to Carroll Road. And of course, th- there'll be joy. There'll be people who, who can't wait to get back in. But there'll be some people that are uh, a little bit nervous. And, uh, and for the reasons that, that you've kind of stated, it is a, a real, um, it's a real interesting one. And it's still really quite difficult to, again, Paddy mapped out there, but to foresee even a month or so away to, to having full stadiums that, that does feel like a big jump from where we currently are at the moment I mean we ended the championship season when cases were declining and, and when they were significantly lower than they were now with um, with, with well behind closed doors didn't we there, there was no one in the stadium so yeah I, I, I can understand why people feel anxious about it it's um it's going to be incredibly interesting just on a wider point, taking football at it to, to if you're a psychologist or um, someone who looks at human behaviour, it's going to be really interesting to see how people behave on an individual and collective basis. I think come the, the 19th of July and afterwards, there'll be some people that are absolutely bursting to get back to what they're doing. And other people I think will be, will be more slowly and there's no, no sort of right or wrong answer in that really. But um, yeah, it is going to be a special occasion when we finally do get back to Carrow Road and, and there is that first on the ball city and, and people seeing each other again. You just hope it's in a climate that is kind of safe for everyone, really, and, and that everyone feels comfortable, irrespective of their age, vaccine status, whatever. That's that's kind of it, really. You want, you want people to be in an environment where they feel comfortable and safe and hopefully uh, hopefully they do come the time that we um, we kick off the Premier League season. Well, the first friendly, for instance, at the Walks, Kings Inn next Friday, that's before July the 19th. So we'll be all wearing masks and carrying out the current um, guidelines. And then a few weeks later, potentially at a full stadium with no masks and stuff. So, you know, we're at that transition point, aren't we? At the tipping point almost. And um, yeah, it's going to be uh, a strange time. But hopefully, where you know, if everybody's just sensible and... Uh, I don't know, I suppose if the government react properly to if things aren't working out well, then we can start working our way back, back towards normality. But yeah, it still feels a bit surreal to be talking about it. But that that overwhelming thought of everyone being back together again and starting to move towards normality and those big moments, like you say, that first on the ball city, the first goal that scored and, and all that sort of stuff, it's, it's tantalising. You know, we all want to get back to it and just forget about all this... 18 months, which has been strange and distressing and all, all the things that we've talked far too much about in recent months. But um, we'll get there one way or the other. But to the football, we've seen a few exits, haven't we, Pad? Um, Josip Dermich, Sebastian Soto, Daniel Barden and Josh Martin all out the door on loans. But different scenarios for, so for all involved. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the last two names you mentioned, Barden and, uh, and Martin, that's just part of the process of players who are... Talented, no doubt, uh, who Daniel would think a lot of, Daniel Farker. But ultimately, at this stage, particularly with Norwich now in the Premier League, are not really going to be the uh, options he's going to look to use. Um, so that's that makes perfect sense for Daniel Barden. He goes off and plays Scottish Premiership, half-decent level. Livingston finished sixth or seventh, I think, last season. So, that, you know, they're clearly a team where he should get a good standard of football. He's already 
gone up there. He's been training with them for a period. He made his debut in a friendly I saw last Saturday. Um, so good luck to him. You know, he, he did play a little, albeit very important, cameo in what happened in the Championship last season. We all, all remember, you know, the injury crisis to Michael McGovern and Tim Krul slash Tim obviously being diagnosed with coronavirus as well. So, you know, interesting to see because he, he, he looked like it didn't phase him. You know, he got thrown in very deep. Um, but as Daniel said, you know, these young players, you don't know until you put them in. Obama Daly was another one towards the end of last season. You really don't know until you expose them if, they, if they're good enough and they've got the mentality. He's one who looked like he did have. And, you know, Norwich and goalkeepers, very, very long and proud tradition. And um, they're hothousing one or two of those younger types. So let's see what 12 months in the Scottish Premiership does for that man. And, of course, Josh Martin linking up with his namesake, Russell Martin, formerly of the parish, MK Dons, a team who I'm sure will be hoping to push for the, the playoffs in League One. And he'll go, you would think, and, and get regular football. And he, he needs that, I think. I think he was he was on the fringes this time last summer. He, he, if he'd have really put down a marker, I could have seen him playing a bigger role, but just faded away a touch. And uh, and obviously, you know, the form of Wendy and Cantwell in those positions. And then below them, you had Hernandez and Poeta. Kind of his opportunities dried up a little bit. So I don't think him hanging around the development side this coming season would benefit him. So... That, for me, those two moves make entirely perfect sense. And Soto, Connor and myself discussed it on, on our window watch on a, on a Friday afternoon across all the Pinkton channels. It's it's really just a, probably an acceptance that Daniel Farker ultimately and Stuart Webber um, don't feel he is going to be close enough to the first team anytime soon. They've obviously had a look at him now, managed to get him back from his loan early, got him the work permit. They looked at him for six months towards the end of last season. and um, And now the fact that it's... It's a loan initially, but there's an option to buy from Porto's angle. That, I think, is decision made. I, I think they probably look at Adam Eda, for example, as, as somebody who's much closer in terms of age profile, but also towards that first-team thoughts if you're Daniel Farker. So, and ultimately, they're going to make, if it, if it is a buy, and, and the, the figures they're talking are around a million euros for a player who they picked up on a free transfer, in purely economic terms, that's an excellent piece of business. If if you feel he's not really right for Norwich and he's not really going to be a first-team option, that is one of the strands of what they're trying to do when they pick up these these younger players is, yes, I guess, first and foremost, develop them so they're good enough, like Ben Godfrey, for example, to play in your first team and then go on to bigger and better things. But they're not every young player they bring in isn't going to be a Ben Godfrey or a James Madison. Um, and in this case, they feel Sebastian Soto, probably not for us. So, you know, good luck to him. Hopefully he goes and impresses and, and it becomes a permanent move. Uh you can, be, you can be sure if Stuart Webber's got anything to do with it, there'll be plenty of attendant clauses if that played out and he went on and had a very good career, that there, there would be certainly a sell-on fee involved if, if he moved on from Porto. Um, and the final one, I'm losing track, Dave. Who was the fourth yeah, name? Well, well, you know, not surprising. I've forgotten about him. <laughs> given he, didn't, he, didn't really, uh, he didn't really leave much of an impression in the last 12 months. And he's gone back to, to where he finished last season on loan, uh, Initially, it's a loan, but but ultimately, he only had 12 months left, and that's HNK Rijeka. Apologies for the pronunciation. Croatian uh, Europa League, I think they qualified, or the Conference League, I think. Uh, yeah, Conference League qualified, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he went there and he scored six, I think it was, off Tommy Head in 16 appearances. Um, and clearly, you know, he was happy with them. They were happy with him. So, you know, Norwich have essentially said, go and finish finish your, your 12 months of your contract here and there. They'll, they'll clearly be a financial element in terms of a loan fee. Rieka will probably pay a proportion of his wages. Uh, and ultimately, there's a finality about that now. Josip Dermic will no longer be a Norwich player. Um, and that's officially won't be a Norwich player when he, the end of his contract. But essentially, he's no longer part of the Norwich project. And uh, 
you know, we I wrote a piece about this yesterday. It's on, on pinker.com. Ultimately, they took a gamble on him, free agent, but he had the injury record, which is why he was a free agent, despite scoring a lot of goals in the Bundesliga. Um, physically, he didn't look up, like he was up to the Premier League. And when he did get his opportunities, when Timu Puki came out of the side, he didn't grab him, bar those one or two FA Cup cameos. So, again, you know, not every free agent is Timu Puki or Tim Krul, much like we just said there. Not every young player to bring in is Ben Godfrey or James Madison. They rolled the dice, didn't work with Dermic, so um, good luck to him. But what I like about it is that, you know, he hasn't sat and kicked his heels for 12 months and just picked up his wages. He's actually wanted to go and play football um, and, and realise that his age, he, he needs to be playing, particularly when he's lost quite a lot of his career, two injuries as well. So, you know, fair play to him on that front. Um, and that obviously then just probably leaves one or two other loose ends, really. If you look at the remainder, that's Tom Tribal and, and Tim Closer for me. Uh, and I'd enti- I would entirely expect those two to be moved on at some point between now and probably the end of the window, because I think ultimately their futures lie away from Cairo. Yeah, that's the big thing, isn't it, Connor, really, that, that Stuart Webber has been very proactive here. We've already seen Heiser go, Leitner go. They came to an agreement with Steepman, so that that was over. Dermich is now gone. And, and as Pad says, we expect Closer and Tribal will, will get sorted as well because they're in the final 12 months of their deal. So they're, they're very much thinning things out. And we sort of teed this up uh, probably a couple of months ago now, didn't we, in, in terms of that they just don't need a, a squad that is uh, as big. But um, we've seen... A fair bit of uh, a fair bit of work completed now, haven't we? Yeah, we have. We have certainly for, from those. I think the key ones really were were Leitner, weren't they? And Dermich were those two sort of tribals, obviously playing football last year um, all season. So you would imagine that he will have suitors, whether that's England or, or elsewhere. And again, if not, then there are various solutions that they can they can have the same with closer, I suppose. And um, it, it's good to see. And, and I, I would imagine being a Norwich fan, it's it's very positive to see those solutions coming to pass very quickly because the the last thing you want is for them to drag on all summer and Norwich being unable to plan with perhaps the wages that they would get in if those sort of situations were sorted. So, um, and, and again, as, as you wrote about David in the contracts piece, very good in terms of the, the people one year left sorting out their various situations, particularly those that aren't going to stick around and it's good for the player as well as it is the club, I think. So, Positive in, in both directions. I think what's interesting about Dermich lighting a trial, maybe lighting it to a lesser extent, is it probably shows how they're looking to shift in terms of physical profile. You've got two players there that, um, without sort of, um, uh, don't, don't know the right word, but they're, they're, they're not the quickest, are they? I think that's probably the politest way to put it. And um, probably in terms of physical profile, aren't necessarily what you need if, if you're going to be a, an agile, fit, dynamic versatile Premier League side um, and it probably in many ways represents a shift from perhaps where they got it wrong two years ago by recruiting those sort of players and carrying those sort of players to maybe their mindset and their school of thought now which is actually you need players who are dynamic are physical in, in different areas as, as we've spoken about before not just being big and, and tall and ugly you, you need them to be sort of sprint uh, well very quick um consistent in, in their sprints as well and, and and relatively quick on the term which isn't the case for, for those that are maybe departing so it's a really interesting transition I think we're seeing here not just of players but equally of profiles and um, it all leans towards uh, a sort of different Premier League approach with, with a bit more of a, a different sort of squad I suppose and um, yeah as, as you said the worst thing you could do is kind of carry passages I think on that journey particularly when as Stuart Webber is sort of openly spoken about you want quality not quantity um and, and these uh, are going to help 
I think with the togetherness, it doesn't help anyone. If, if you've got a player sat in Germany who's not playing a game, not turning to, up to training every week, and maybe the other players are kind of going, oh, what happened to so-and-so or X? Where, why is he not playing or whatever? So best solution all around, best for Norwich, best for the players. And uh, yeah, hopefully they can go elsewhere because they've, they've, they've clearly got talent. And uh, as Paddy says, certainly for Dermich at this stage of his career, needs to play. Same with Mo Leitner, as, as we discussed on last week's show. And it's the same for the other two in question. So, um, yeah, it's almost a case of two down, two to go, isn't it, in terms of, of that four? Yeah, and it's good in financial terms as well, of course, to to get these things to get these things sorted out. And it also emphasises the amount of players Norwich got on the books. Um, we, we talked about it quite a few times during the last year, how beneficial that was for Norwich during... An unprecedented season, the fixtures compacted and it was so busy and hectic. And, you know, we had saw the impacts of COVID occasionally with players having to, to isolate and things like that. So they I think they probably got that right last year in terms of the amount of bodies they carried. But now, yeah, it's just thinning things down a little bit. But since we last recorded the pod, um, as we were expecting, Demetrius Yanunis and Ben Gibson were both confirmed. Uh, Billy Gilmore as well. Um, that was coming for, for quite a while before it actually got confirmed on Friday, wasn't it? But we we talked about that a lot in window watch and stuff on Friday. So we'll leave that. But, Pad, there was one quote which uh, certainly caught quite a lot of uh, attention, isn't it, from Ben Gibson, who just quite literally said, we are going to stay up. What did you think yeah. of that? You, you like to sort of hear that sort of positivity or is it a, a bit of a risky tactic? <laughs> All day long, all day long. No, um, yeah, I mean, if, if if you don't believe it and you're a Norwich player, then this, there's not a lot of point in basically turning up if you don't think you're going to be able to stay up. But for him to actually externalise that, um, and, and, and as he would have sure known by giving it in an interview, get picked up by various outlets, uh, he is almost uh, setting himself up there for, for that to be dragged out in however many months' time, 10 months' time. Uh, if things have gone pear-shaped. But I like it. I like the positivity. And, and and if that's reflective of the view inside the camp, then, again, you know, I think if you're Stuart Webber, you want to shed the, you know, there's many there's many things club people outside of Norfolk would look at Norwich City as a football club. And there's many commendable things about how they go about their business, how they try to do it, the, the relationship with the fan base. Um and also now, obviously, the, the financial sort of path that they've embarked on, where, where they're not trying to like spend money that they don't have, and and that's been, you know, I think proven in the last period of time, and that's a very astute policy. Um, but what I'm sure Stuart Webber wants to shed is this little old Norwich. We're, we're just thankful to be on the ride. We're happy to be in the Premier League. Oh, but we don't think we've got any chance of staying up. We'll just bob, bob along towards the, the bottom of the table, and then at the suitable juncture, we'll, we'll deposit deposit ourselves back in the football league. That mentality. Um, has no place uh, at that football club with Stuart Webber at the helm. And and that's why, you know, it needs to be, we're going to stay up, we're good enough, we're going to show you. We, we're not going to be the Norwich of two seasons ago where it was by Farker's own measure and Webber's, for that matter, a miracle. For them to stay up was going to be a miracle. That that label, you will not hear from their work, from their mouths in, in the rest of this summer through the season because ultimately they're far better equipped now, both in terms of the squad makeover that's happening, uh, the financial um, ballast that they've got to draw on even in a pandemic and, and the massive hole that's left in terms of the finances from no match day revenue for a full season um, but also for me crucially uh, is the experience you know Farker himself his coaching staff even Weber. but there's a core of players who know what it's all about now there's not the wide-eyed what are we doing here when they stood next to Mo Salah in the tunnel at Anfield on that Friday of the opening night 
two seasons ago. They know what it's all about now. And Ben Gibson does as well. And with Ben Gibson, there's the added factor that he needs to prove that what happened at Burnley was was ultimately more about Burnley than about Ben Gibson and that he is a good enough Premier League player and that he belongs at that level. And I think anybody who saw him last season would agree that he's too good for the championship. Um, and, and you can imagine the fire that's burning within that man to, to prove on a personal level he's good enough. But also, you know, as part of a team who... Let's be honest. Uh, most outside of Norfolk will write them off, and and if and when we get to the point of pick your three to go down or pick your X to do this, pretty much every national pundit, I'm sure, will stick Norwich in as a relegation certainties. I don't think personally uh, it's going to be as cut and dried as that, and uh, and it's good to hear from inside the camp because they're the people who matter. They're the people who will shape whether it happens or not. But they believe it as well. So yeah, fair play to him. You know, I thought that was a, a front foot bullish type of statement, and uh, I'm sure. Far- the fans have lapped that up because ultimately they want to hear it's not going to be we're happy to be here and we'll come along for the ride and then we'll see you back in the championship in May. They want to hear we're up and we intend to stay up. Great. Yeah, yeah that, that frames it really nicely, that change from how it was two years ago. And it'll be interesting to see how bullish they are across the board in these sort of interviews in, in the months to come and see whether that kind of determination comes through from a lot of the interviews because I don't know about other people, but I believe Gibson when he said that, when you saw those words come out of his mouth, you know, he's a man who has been there with Middlesbrough and tasted what relegation has been like. And as we talked about several times last season, Krull, Hanley, Gibson, that is three particularly strong characters. But from Gibson to Gibbs, nice little segue. We've got some breaking news of a of a kind. Uh, we have uh, reported this already, but... Um, our colleagues at the East Anglian Daily Times, um, this is just breaking. You can see it on our websites um, at your leisure. But um, as we're recording, it's just being uh, it's coming out from the Ipswich end that uh, Liam Gibbs, young Ipswich town midfielder who Norwich were linked with uh, a few weeks ago. We had that on our sites um, is poised to join Norwich. Um, and from what we've heard, we think that's correct as well. Um, he's 18. He got to the FA Youth Cup semi-finals with Ipswich last year, did really well for them. Um, they, uh, Our colleagues have put uh, a couple of quotes from Paul Lambert, uh, which I'll read to you now. Um, obviously, Lambert no longer the Ipswich manager, but he was the man who gave him his League One debut. And uh, apparently he turned down a contract from Ipswich and uh, is poised to, to join uh, the academy ranks at Norwich. We should stress this isn't a, a lad that's going to be in the first team next year. He's, he's still young. But Lambert said last season, uh, he's a really good player, a really talented footballer. But as I've said before, I say it every time, he needs a little bit of time to develop and there's no pressure. He's really clever with the ball. He's a really intelligent player. You only really need to tell him something once and he takes it in. So uh, that's an interesting little deal, isn't it, Connor, in terms of uh, signing someone from your your nearest and dearest who are uh, down in League One? Yeah, he's he's seen the light, hasn't he? Um, eventually, which is which is good. No, I, I think in, in all seriousness, it shows, uh, and we've seen similar, I guess, with, with Flynn Clark at Peterborough, who had also made his League One debut. You could even track it back to Dan Adshead, who made his League One debut at Rochdale a few seasons ago. It shows mm. the power that Norwich City have, certainly at that level, of recruiting young talent because of the pathway that they've developed, because of the track record that they have, because those young talents are seeing Ben Godfrey go for, for X amount to, to Everton and um, James Madison, whatever. I know he wasn't, didn't come all the way through, but I guess similar to, to their situations currently. So it's, um, it's, it shows that they're, uh, they're uh, kind of pulling power in that regard. Then if, if those reports are, are to be believed, then Norwich seem to have beaten off some fairly, um, some fairly good sort of, uh, 
competitors for, for that signature. Aston Villa, I'm reading here as well. So it, it shows, uh, I think, what they've built over the last four years. The fact that now there is 18-year-olds who are regarded as some of the best talent at their respective clubs now are willing to take that step up and believe in the the, the process and the development of, of their futures at Norwich City. And, and that's a testament to the work that Stuart Webber, Steve Weaver, the guys in the academy have done to kind of create that reputation and to forge that reputation. And it's Daniel Farker as well for also having the um, the, the guts, I suppose, to to play those young players in moments where perhaps other coaches wouldn't who, who are more experienced. So it's a really interesting deal because of obviously the, the crossing the divide sort of rivalry stuff, I think, that, that will naturally grab a lot of people's attention. I know not a lot of Norwich fans will be will be will be pleased. We'll see it as um, quite funny, I, I, I can imagine. Um, but look, he's, he's an 18-year-old lad. He's clearly one that they feel they can develop and improve. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll watch his his development with with interest in, in the under-23s. But, um, uh, you know, as, as I kind of said, they signed Flynn Clark in that position. Regan Riley came from Bolton, didn't he, a few weeks ago. It seems now that we're beginning to see a shift from maybe recruiting strikers and obviously the, the potential... Um, financial value that you can get out of developing a really good striker and selling him on and we're now seeing that sort of track back to attacking midfielders and midfielders so um, it's it's really interesting um, I will imagine he will he'll get a fair bit of stick from both his current teammates and his new teammates um, as he walks into Colney but um, it's a, a brave decision and, uh, and one that I think probably again shows the, the disparity between the clubs at the moment doesn't it but, um, but yeah uh, I think certainly from our perspective definitely the right right decision right yeah um well you know he's not the first rural fox i suppose in norwich terms is the the big example isn't he? he's an ipswich boy and was uh, very much became a norwich legend so this lad's from barry st edmunds we'll have to see where his sort of uh, allegiances lie once uh, uh if we ever get the opportunity to, to chat to him if he ever sort of becomes that sort of level of success but um we shall see welcome to the new normal. Hello, and welcome to this series of Unfinished with me, Charles Thompson. Welcome to Weird Norfolk. Welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. From true crime to football, politics to folklore, for more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com forward slash channel forward slash Archant. One thing I wanted to come back to you on, actually, Connor, was uh, Ollie Skip, because I think you picked up on this over the weekend, wasn't it? And there was uh, a little bit of an update. I and mean, it doesn't, it's not sounding promising on the Skip front, is it? No, it isn't. Uh, and again, that's kind of been reiterated today. Similar, very similar reports, really, not, not really anything new. But it, it just goes to show, I think, that he's at the forefront of this kind of young talents that they're hoping the, the new head coach, Nuno, will, will look to develop and, uh, and bring through the academy. It's him and, and Sesson Young that they're, that they're hoping they're the two. Um, I always get them mixed up. It's Ryan Sesson Young, isn't it? Um, yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah, Stephen Sesson Young's the uh, British now, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I always get them mixed up. But, um, uh, they, they seem to be the two that in their discussions with all the head coaches, if reports are to be believed, that they really want to focus on this year and can see as um, can see as breaking into the first team. I mean, the report I read said it's uh, that skip loan to Norwich has been one of the best in Spurs history in terms of developing a young talent and um, and, and the progress. 
Well, yeah, exactly. Well, he had several, didn't he? So, um, but but yeah, I, I think it is unlikely. And, and to be fair, I think Norwich have always planned for that situation. I mean, in that circumstance, it's kind of a plan for life without Skip. And then if you can get him late on uh, as a bonus, then then that's kind of the cherry on top of the cake. But not ideal. But I, I think maybe given his his level of performances, and I spoke to a few people about this. Um, throughout last season really who, who believed that his level of performance was of a high enough standard that he'd be if not knocking on the door then in Spurs' first team next season we we knew how much Jose Mourinho rates him I doubt that's going to be any different with Nuno and um, what is going to be interesting I guess is is how they get him into that team because they've got some really good midfield options uh, and, yeah. and Dombele, Sissoko, Winks um, we, could, we could list a few of Hoiberg as well who's of course going to play England tonight so he's going to have some really big competition in there and maybe if this injury does set him back and maybe three or four midfielders have a really good burst of form at the start of season and, and he's not really getting on the bench he might take matters into his own hand and there might still be that possibility late on in the window but yeah certainly right now it, it seems unlikely and, and Norwich already uh, as you mentioned have Gilmore in the building and are obviously looking to do another and, um, and it seems that Phil, Phil Billing is, is, is the one that they would like so I think if, if you could get those two Great if you then get Ollie Skip on top of that, excellent. But yeah, as you said, it looks pretty unlikely at the moment that, um, that we're going to see a return for Ollie Skip this uh, this season. Yeah, well, we shall see. Um, we pre-season is starting to take shape, though, isn't it, Pad? Um, next Friday we we already knew that we were going to going to the Walks, Kings Inn. Um, then and we already knew about the Colney friendlies, which is against Lincoln uh, and a, a double header against Huddersfield, but uh, also a couple against Premier League opposition trips to Sheffield United and, and Newcastle. Yeah, yeah, it's taking shape, Dave. Yeah, and and worth reiterating, um, the Sheffield United one is the final weekend of what would have been the scheduled uh, week long trip to Germany. Their, their regular base that was the original plan, uh, but even in the midst of maybe restrictions starting to get eased in terms of travel between the two countries, uh, Norwich took the decision that that's not going to happen now. So it will be domestic only. Um, and that obviously fills in one of the dates. They were originally scheduled to play, I think, three games, although one of those was a double header, so probably only two opponents. But um, no, tell a lie, there was going to be three actual different opponents. Mm. But my understanding is they might look to now maybe have a little mini camp somewhere in the north. Obviously, they're playing Sheffield United on the on the on the Saturday, the thirty first at Bramall Lane. So I don't think it's beyond the realms of probability there'll be another fixture, maybe a few days before in that part of the world as well, and. By all accounts, they are quite keen. We talked at length about Car Road and, and full houses from Liverpool onwards. I think they're quite keen to just test their procedures because it has been so long. You know, Leicester in the Premier League two seasons ago since there was a, well, I suppose you could talk about the pilot events they had last season, but in terms of a full house at Car Road, um, you're going back a long, long time. And uh, with that in mind, I think if they can, they'll try and slot in a Car Road home friendly as well, um, possibly after the Newcastle game, but prior to clearly the Liverpool uh, game as well, so but that's TBC. Um, and if they did again, that would be uh, you know, I'm sure a very highly desirable game for a lot of people to go down at Car Road and, and watch the albeit pre season action, but first time for a lot of people inside Car Road. And um, you know, Newcastle away is quite an interesting one. I think uh, a week before the season starts, you wouldn't normally tend to get that, but it is a reflection of a lot of clubs are deciding probably best to stick to a domestic program, and if that is the case. And there isn't, you know, high-profile continental opposition for that week before. Then, you know, with the greatest respect to League One, League Two, maybe even Championship clubs, you probably do want a stronger test. And and I think 
the lineup that turns up at uh, St James's on the seventh of August will be pretty close to what we might see against Liverpool. I think so. Uh, that's the standout fixture for me, and obviously St James is what stadium that is to go watch football. So I'm personally looking forward to that one. But uh, yeah, I think uh, there's something for everyone really there. The Kingsland fixture is a great fixture uh, for, for local fans of both clubs, albeit you know with a reduced capacity because it's still pre the the unlock date. Um, and then you know behind closed doors at Colney, a couple of football league opposition, opposition, and then Sheffield recently in the Premier League and then Newcastle who are in the Premier League. So clearly you can see how they've done it in terms of the opposition to try and stagger it in terms of strength and, and test uh, to get them battle-hardened for, for Liverpool on the, uh, the opening weekend. So, yeah, but as I say, probably another two. I think if, if everything fell into place, probably another two domestic fixtures allied to the existing programme, which has been added to this morning with the Sheffield United fixture. Yeah, and with the EFL season starting the week before and travel restrictions and stuff at the moment, it kind of means that the Premier League boys have got to play each other <laughs> on that last weekend. But that's not totally unprecedented, is it? Because we've seen plenty of tournaments in China and Japan and things like that over the years in, in America in pre-season when Premier League clubs play against each other and maybe a couple of European sides or whatever. So um, it's not totally unusual, but it, there, there is a almost a strange symmetry there that Newcastle and Sheffield United were two of the last away games that we all did together and that the fans went to and stuff. You know, Bramall Lane obviously is the one which was what marks the seventh last year and us just as uh, as a team you know the three of us haven't been to an away game together since that day uh, and producer tony as well it's been two of us at most at any of the away games since then so um it will be um yeah quite odd to to be going back to these places but um yeah should be should be a good test now so we're what's about six weeks away from the Liverpool game as we record today there's a, a story on the Liverpool echo um in recent days uh, pointing out that um, they have got five players who are in big finals uh, or potentially in big finals. I have to see how uh, England get on tonight. But it's definitely Alisson, Fabinho and Firmino uh, are with, or Firmino, sorry, uh, with Brazil for the Copa America final on Saturday against Argentina. Uh, Thiago Alcantara is with Spain for the Euros final and could be joined by Jordan Henderson if England win tonight. So those are five important players for them who are not going to get a lot of turnaround time and not necessarily going to get a full pre-season. So the Echo reporting that Jurgen Klopp wants his players to be getting at least bare minimum three weeks rest and holiday after the hectic season that they've had, which so if they had four weeks off, that would mean they are starting their pre-season the week before, literally days before the Norwich game. So that is going to be an interesting one to monitor. But we can't be crying about it too much, can we, Connor? Because we already know the Grant Hanley situation in that he is uh, likely to have some form of truncated pre-season. Tami Puki as well, it's unlikely he's going to be involved straight away. But you picked up Kenny McLean's quotes as well at the weekend, didn't you? which it sounds like he's probably going to be struggling for, for a start against Liverpool and, and, unless things do pick up quite quite a lot. Yeah, a little bit of a setback, but well, maybe not a setback, but maybe just not an improvement is is maybe the the way you you'd put it. It doesn't seem like, judging by his quotes, I think he said something along the lines of not really kicked on in the way that they'd hoped in the last couple of weeks. And um, these were these were from the weekend, and they were looking at maybe possibly this week giving him an injection to try and sort of rapidly improve his progress. But as things stand, it, it looks like, uh, as you say there, Dave, his, his timeline is going to run very closely to that first game against Liverpool and. There will be players already in the building that would have done substantial amounts of pre-season by that point. So it's going to be probably very unlikely for him to start that game and probably not impossible. But 
again, relatively unlikely that he's involved in some capacity, which is clearly a, a big blow for Norwich City's sort of engine room. And I guess kind of stresses the need to to get that midfielder, that extra midfielder in the building before before that kickoff against Liverpool. But it's a shame for him, isn't it? Uh, he's kind of speaking about the Euros disappointment as well from from personal perspective, not being able to to be involved in that. Um, obviously spoke about the, the positive of, of Billy Gilmore joining and it's... Um, it's been kind of a disappointing month or so for him. So you just hope he does get that moment to, to start the Premier League and he does get that that opportunity to to maybe put a couple of them them injury demons behind him. Um, and hopefully when he returns, that'll kind of be the end of it because he, he was a player two years ago that Daniel Farker described as, um, what did he say, um, in, indispensable, something along yeah. those lines of. So so that, that goes to show the importance. And he, he is someone, I mean, we spoke about athletic qualities a lot, I think, during these pods throughout pre-season. He's someone that does possess that and... Um, I think if if you look at that, how that midfield is shaping up, and you look at the different options in there, I think it, it's probably pretty clear that they're looking for a bit of balance in maybe the players that they have. You look at Gilmore, who's who's especially technical. McLean is, it's got legs, hasn't he? He's, he's dynamic. He, it's a very good um, passer. Don't get me wrong, but I think in terms of the engine he has, he's, he's a little bit different to, to maybe what Gilmore possesses. So I think that it's, it's kind of looking to to get a bit more variety in there for Daniel Farker, um, maybe horses for courses to an extent, and. Um, yeah, as I think we've kind of spoken about before, Billing would certainly tick the box, wouldn't he, in terms of height and power and stuff to to probably round that off as as a free. So hopefully McLean can get himself fit and there can be progress and that injection does help him uh, and he can make sort of the final couple of weeks of pre-season. But even then, is, is Daniel Farker going to want to throw him straight into a Premier League environment? I'm, I'm not so sure, personally. No, it's going to be interesting to see what the midfield's like in uh, in pre-season. I mean, Melvin City might even be in the mix at the moment, given that we expect him to go back out on loan. They might just need the numbers because what have they got at the moment? If Depending on how fit Lucas Rupp is, um, who also finished the season injured, then it's it's Gilmore and, and Sorensen, isn't it, for, for the opening friendly? So um, we shall see. If you ever want to send us a question for the pod, please do. Um, you can find us on all the usual platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we did have one in uh, just before we started recording, Pad, which I'll put to you, which I think was being a little bit mischievous, uh, which from Phil, who is uh, at the Dice Mechanic. Um, so he's talking about Josh Martin. Is sending players on loan to MK Dons just hiding the deep fake truth that it's also the training ground for Farker's replacement? Uh, I've lost the thread there. So, so sending them to work with the new to work with Russell Martin is what he's getting at, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I, yeah. Well, if he if he wins the title in League One, I'm sure whenever Farker does, <laughs> in the background, it looks like we're, we're gonna we're gonna reach a point pretty soon, certainly before Liverpool, where Daniel signs a new deal. So, I don't think there's going to be an opportunity here anytime soon. But they, they then again, if uh, if Russ. Cracks on, gets him into the championship, and then is doing bits in the championship. Uh, then I'm sure his name will be in the frame, no doubt about it. I, I still think, I mean, he's made no secret. At some point, he would love to be back here in a managerial coaching capacity, um, but he needs to go and put a few uh, gold stars on his coaching CV, I think, before he would be considered um, as a justifiable post Farker replacement. But uh, I don't think there's going to be opportunity here anytime soon. Uh, so uh, yeah, no, it's good. It's good. I think it's it's. it's, it's what I like about that arrangement is clearly the way Russ wants to play. Isn't that isn't a million miles dissimilar to Daniel's style in terms of possession and maybe even more marked, you would say, you know, in terms of their possession stats. And, you know, there, there was those quotes last season where inevitably you play that style. It doesn't always work for you and it can look a little bit um, kind of 
you know, you're going side to side kind of thing, and then that penetration isn't there. And of course, a few results didn't quite follow. And when it was put to him, what about a plan B? He said, no, you just make the plan A better, don't you? So you just continue to work at what he believes is the right way to play the game. And, and maybe there was an echo of that with Daniel, but obviously Daniel now is probably a bit more pragmatic. He's been been in it in English football a few 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 seasons now, and he understands the need to refine maybe that pure possession-based approach. But I think you're going to get good habits if you if you're being coached by Russell Martin. You're going to you're going to be coming back to Norwich if you're Josh Martin, um, coached in the right way, and hopefully you know if he grasps it because a lot of this will boil down to. Josh's attitude and mindset and not feeling that he's been pushed to the side and, and told to go back down to League One and maybe he feels he's better than that. If he goes with the right attitude, the talent isn't in doubt. Um, and I think under Russ, he, he will be coached in the right way. And then, as I say, you know, you come back in 12 months' time, depending on where Norwich are and where they're playing their football, he should be a lot closer to Daniel's thoughts. So, yeah, but um, I, I don't don't see Russell Martin as the, the heir apparent. Let's put it that way. I think he's got to go in a achieve things in his coaching career, um, irrespective of his Norwich credentials from his time here as a player. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking for Josh and I'm sure Stuart Weber and Daniel are to for that to be a big success. You know, Josh Murphy had a very good loan at MK Dons, which I think was when they were in the championship in Norwich in the Premier League, wasn't it? And he won it's off the top of my head. I think he won players player of the year and things like that. And that really set up his career. Josh has got game winning talent, hasn't he? He can create assists and score goals. And he has got something a little bit special about him. So this season is it's his big opportunity. If he wants to break through at Norwich, you've got to go and tear it up at MK Dons. But, you know, Russ, as far as I'm concerned, you know, he is a club legend. He is a very, very nice guy who I don't think you, you're going to hear any, many people steer you away from, from that at all. A very popular guy within the club and within football. He seems to be doing a lot to move himself in the right direction to maybe one day be in contention for the Norwich job. But, uh, you know, he wasn't universally popular with with everyone as a player. Uh, he wasn't everyone's favourite player is probably a better way to phrase it. Um, so, I, yeah, I agree. I think he really needs some success. But you, you can see that he's he's doing things the right way. And I'm sure Norwich fans will be pleased to see that he is making a good start to his, uh, sort of his career as a coach. Um, Connor, another good story. There's so much to pack in this week. I've literally we, we've nearly worked my way our way through my whole list now uh, because there's lo- various little bits and pieces. I mean, um, Joma were confirmed as the kit manufacturer last week. That obviously got some people quite excited. Some people couldn't care less. They just they know the, the kits are going to be yellow, so that's all that's all they're worried about. But I, I'm sure we'll see the um, the home kit fairly soon. It's obviously got to be revealed before the the Lynn friendly. Um, but Onel Hernandez. Um, I thought that was an interesting story that is sort of, well, uh, quite a sad story for, for him and his, his Cuba teammates really being, being denied. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, they've, they've kind of been caught up they, in, in a political blockade between the US and Cuba, which I think has been in place since the 60s. And mm. um, that has that basically sort of seen their Gold Cup qualify, well, their Gold Cup campaign full stop thrown out of the window. They got stranded, didn't they? Uh, you might have to remind me of the country they got stranded in, but it wasn't Cuba. Was it Nicaragua? Uh, that's it. Yeah, that's it. They got stranded there uh, because there were a lot of players that they were still waiting for sort of approval from the US, uh, the US authorities, I suppose, in terms of visas. That wasn't forthcoming. And so they couldn't make that trip to Miami um, and they couldn't play their game um, in the, I think, it, I, I'm not sure what round of qualifying it was, but um it, it would have. It was essentially the qualification process for that Gold Cup, wasn't there? And this is obviously the first time that Cuba have allowed players outside of their domestic league to play for their international um, team. So it means a lot, like Onel Hernandez, there are plenty of others as well. 
have kind of been denied the opportunity to represent their country in a Gold Cup for something outside of footballing reasons, which is um, which is quite sad. Uh, he, he was pretty scathing, wasn't he, on social media? Sort of didn't hide his frustration. Said that a lot of his teammates were in tears, and it's um, it's it's a real shame actually that that political reasoning is is behind that. It, it should always be. Um, based on football merit if you're not going to compete in a competition and, and I think they were quite upset with the the governing body and their response to it as well I think they, they didn't really help them out and it's just a bit of a shame because obviously for Anel he's, he's been out there hasn't he for a month or so working hard building mm, up to yeah, that yeah. fixture and, and a lot of players will family, have I think. yeah absolutely and he's he's got a young child hasn't he and, and, and a fiance and stuff like that so that's probably a, a big bit of his life that has now been sort of taken from him for something that wasn't really in his control, so it, it is disappointing, and that's that's why I think when when this sort of debate around politics and football comes up, it's why I think it, it can never be totally separated as uh, as much as people may like, and it never will be because there are going to be these instances, and it's just really sad. I think for the players involved, part of the political issues is not for us to get into, but just on a on a pure footballing level, for someone who's wanted to represent his country and maybe even lead his country into a major competition, it's really sad that. He's been denied that opportunity, not because of something that's happened on the pitch. And um, yeah, I think a lot of Norwich fans will, will be quite disappointed for him. And equally, it's going to be interesting to see now how he responds to that with Norwich because he's going to have to come back and get ready for pre-season. And yes, he's getting ready for a Premier League campaign, but um, certainly at the moment doesn't look like he's a frontline option. And it's just going to be interesting to see whether his morale has been dented by that experience of not being able to have that opportunity. So We'll, we'll wait and see, I guess. But yeah, it's it's a big disappointment for him, and obviously he's well liked, isn't he, among the the Norwich sphere? So I'm sure there'll be a lot of sympathy for him. Yeah, he's such a friendly, happy guy, isn't he? That everyone's been pleased for to see that success. I mean, if they'd have qualified, he would have basically missed all the preseason. So from a Norwich point of view, it's probably a good thing for him. You know, they had to get past French Guiana and Trinidad and Tobago just to qualify. And then they'd have been in Mexico's group. And obviously they would have been pretty much seen as, as minnows, wouldn't they, uh, uh, if they got to the Gold Cup. So um, it's it's just a, yeah, a bit of a sad story. But the, the drama that's been uh, involved around his attempts to become a Cuba international with, you know, what was it, the uh, volcano that was erupting and being flown in by the police and all that stuff. Pad, you did a nice story about that, didn't you? So, um, you know, O'Neill's a popular guy and, and, and I'm sure the Norwich fans are, are disappointed in him, uh, for him. Uh, but from one popular Norwich City person to another, Pad, uh, Mario Vrancic, former formerly of the parish, has signed for Stoke, got himself a championship deal, staying in England. How how much of a surprise uh, was it they, they was Stoke that he was joining? A little bit in terms of the, the Stoke we saw last season. I, I, did, I didn't see that as a perfect fit for Mario Vrancic as a club. Yeah, I mean, you know, staples in the Premier League for many years under Tony Pulis, hugely wealthy owner, um, magnificent modern stadia there. You know, everything is geared up infrastructure-wise, but... I thought the brand of football that Michael O'Neill was trying to play it was it wasn't I didn't necessarily see that as a perfect fit for Rancic, but I did watch Mario's first sort of club interview and um, and he made the point that you know Michael O'Neill's vision sort of chimes with his. So whether there's going to be a bit more nuanced approach this time around from Stoke, I mean that was obviously worth pointing out. That was Michael O'Neill's first proper season at the championship with Stoke. So maybe he just needed to get his feet under the table. Now he knows what he needs and what he lacked in that squad and um and adding Mario Vrancic, uh, you're certainly going to get creativity and dead ball, uh, masterful. Uh, <laughs> the way, the way uh, you know, as James Madison said, uh, funny enough, I was contacted by the Stoke newspaper up there and they said, you know, 
sent me a list of questions, and one of them was to tell us one thing we might not already know about Mario Vranic. And immediately I thought of the, if we go back to the Wickham game earlier last season when he whipped in that sublime free kick on, on the buzzer and to, to win the points. Huge momentum shifter. That was that early part of that uncomfortable coming out of the Premier League and things weren't, weren't quite clicking. But that was the week where he scored the winner against Birmingham midweek and then he followed up against a very plucky Wickham who probably felt they'd, they'd done enough to earn a point, but he put it in the top bin from 20, 25 yards. And then after that game, Madders, himself no stranger to a free kick, said uh, on social media that Mario's probably the best free kick taker he's worked with. Um, and I, I recounted that anecdote to the Stoke paper. So I've set him up there. Uh, they'll be expecting Roberto Carlos now next time he's on a set piece for Stoke. But um, he does bring that, you know, he brings that added touch of quality and class what he doesn't obviously possess, and Daniel would, would reference it, and, and the fact he wasn't a regular starter in recent seasons was maybe in the championship particularly, you know, the physicality required and, and um, to win your battles in that midfield area. I mean, not that he was ever shirked a tackle. He quite liked to throw himself about, but I think the physical aspect of it in games where you're not dominant in possession and, and you're on the back foot a little bit, he, he wasn't really the option you needed. So, in a Stoke midfield that allows him to have that protection, I think he could he could dictate a game for them, no doubt about it. And at 32, he's still got plenty of football left for me. So, you know, I'll be I'll be watching Stoke from afar with with, with renewed interest. I think because if O'Neill could put a squad together that 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 marries up in terms of what Mario could offer, but what doesn't he doesn't bring in terms of midfield artistry, then. I think you know they're viable contenders for for their top six place. So um, you know, good luck to him. He clearly feels he's got a lot more to give, and uh, and in the championship, you know, hey ho, he's he's a double title winner. So um, he doesn't need to prove himself at that level. Um, it's for others in the Stoke squad to step up to his level, I think. And if they do that, as I say, because they are a very big club at that level and, and have the power to to sort of flex their muscles as well, then I think. They, they're not one you would discount in the top six conversation. And then wouldn't it be lovely if at the end of the, the, this coming season, he's back in the Premier League? That'd be a great end to the story. It would. And it's a really interesting um, example of Leitner may well up end up being like this as well and tribal in that in a post-Brexit world, someone like Mario Vrancic, who has settled status in, in England, you wouldn't be able to sign him from Germany now. Um, he's not an international. He's not playing top flight football. Stowe wouldn't be able to get an equivalent player like that. But because he's already in England, he is now his value, particularly as a free agent, obviously became even even higher. So he would have been able to he would have been in a fairly positive position. And I spoke to him at Barnsley after the final game of the season. You know, we had a bit of a look back on his Norwich career and he was very quick to point out I can't remember exactly the number but I think he said I, I've been fit for 15 months I haven't missed a training session for 15 months or something like that so he was very very keen to stress I'm fit I've got plenty of miles left in the tank and you know we all know what a good player is and you, you laid it out well there and I always think of him as he was willing to put his foot in but he didn't have the pace to get back and get goal side of players to you know his defensive positioning wasn't really good enough and and to be fair I think most of his time at Norwich he was given that bit more license wasn't he to be more on the front foot and be more attacking so yeah just like you know Wes down the road at Cambridge I'm sure Norwich fans will be wanting to keep a, a real close eye on how Mario gets on but um, maybe they need to bring Mamadi Sadibi back so he can swing in some balls to the <laughs> some balls to the back post they need a big man up front like Crouchy again or something 
in to, to really take advantage of those free kicks. But um, there we go. I think that's just about everything squeezed in. We won't go um, too much into transfer stuff because um, Window Watch is 1pm on Friday. That is our regular slot. We will bring that to you across our video platforms and we'll put it out on the audio feed as well. So make sure you don't miss that. And if you've got any questions, do get them into us. Uh, Chris Iyer, Christopher Iyer, the Norway defender, currently not playing for Celtic in a pre-season friendly against Sheffield Wednesday. So um, we'll have to see how that develops, see whether um, the Celtic manager reveals anything on his future. And we'll, we shall just have to wait and see. But um, for now, thank you very much for listening or watching. And we'll catch up with you very soon.